0: Well, it's great to be back with you guys this morning. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to James 2. That's where we're going to be, James chapter 2. Uh, because lots of us were gone over the summer, I did want to give you a quick update on where we are with the Every Knee initiative. If you were here last year, you may... Remember that we as a church, whole church, all the campuses together, uh, we committed ourselves to raising $22 million over two years to help Grace Bible Church reach every neighbor and every nation. And so far, uh, we all, we've generously given almost $11 million. And I wanted to let you know, where is that money going? Because I mean, that's a lot of money. So um, let me walk you through a couple of the big things that are going on. A lot of that money supports just our budget, just everything going on. But a big chunk of that money is going to build a home for the Creekside campus. So they've never had a, a home of their own. And it's Coming along well, we finally had a break in the rain, and so uh, if you go out there and look at it, the steel is all up, the roof's going on, the walls are going up, and they hope to move in late spring, so that's exciting. Another chunk of the money is going towards our next campus. We're calling it Brian Midtown. It's off of uh, Old South Main Road. Um, there is a campus there. There's a bunch of buildings there. We are looking at buying that property and starting a, a new campus and new ministries there. It's actually really cool. It's quite different than our typical campuses because the whole neighborhood around there is Hispanic. So it will be a, a much more Hispanic church campus and ministry context. So we're excited about that. Uh, You heard earlier this morning about the Grace Family Gathering tonight at the Anderson Campus. We will formally formally vote on buying this property. So if you're a member, we'd love to have you there. If you're not a member and just want to know more, we'd love to have you there. God is moving in big ways at Grace Bible Church, expanding the ministry that we're doing, moving us into new groups and opportunities. So we'd love to have you at the Grace Family Gathering tonight. Well, this fall, so you know, starting next Sunday, we're going to do a series, a sermon series through uh, Exodus to Deuteronomy. So that's all of the Pentateuch minus Genesis, because we taught that a few years ago. So Exodus to Deuteronomy starts next week. This week, I was thinking, well, what what would I like to cover? Because I kind of get a free one. So... um, which I love. It's actually like my favorite Sundays. I decided to cover the question I've gotten the most in the last 15 years. So why not have some fun and talk about the question that everyone brings me. So here you go. Now you'll know my answer to this question. So it's James chapter 2. And and the question, it takes on a number of different forms, but it's basically, what do you do with that? What do you do with James 2.14? How do I fit that into my overall theology? And you may be wondering, well, Blake, what are you talking about? What do you do with that? Well, let me show you. Turn to James 2. Let's look at verse 14 together. So just verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. James asks, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? And the answer is obvious. It's a rhetorical question. It's really clear, actually, in Greek. The answer is no. Faith without works cannot save a person. Well, that presents a few problems for us. Because the rest of the New Testament is crystal clear that salvation from hell is by faith alone. Getting eternal life is by faith alone. Alone, I could spend the entire morning showing you proofs of that in your New Testament. Here's just a few. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Hopefully, many of you have memorized it. It's a really powerful passage that shares the gospel. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Just so clear, it's not works. Here's another example, Romans 4, 5. But to the one who does not work doesn't do any good works at all, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, if you really want to see the the, the problem here, let me contrast two verses for you. Paul versus James. Here's what James says, chapter 2, verse 24, just a few verses after what we read. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Here's what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So what do you do with that? Well, this this right here is actually um, one of the primary reasons atheists reject the Bible. So it's often listed as proof that the Bible is contradictory and can't be trusted. This confounded Martin Luther so badly during the Reformation, he wanted to throw James out of the Bible. (laughs) So what do you do with this passage? It is quite challenging, theologically. However, usually I don't get this question from a theological perspective. Usually I get it from a practical perspective, and it's much harder as a practical question. I tend to get this question from people who are Christians who are afraid that they're not doing enough good works to get to heaven. They're, they're struggling with eternal security. And so they'll ask me, well, if James is saying that you have to do good works to Get to heaven, then. How do I know that I've done enough good works? How could I ever know? And so they they live in constant anxiety. How do I know I've done enough? I also get this question a lot from families that have lost a loved one who claimed that he or she was a Christian, but maybe didn't do a lot of good works in the course of his or her life. And so they read this verse and they say they come to me and they say, "Well." What what do I do with the fact that my my son, my daughter, my my mom, my dad, they they claim to be a Christian, but they didn't live a very good life. Does James mean that they're in hell now? And they live in grief and terror. So this is a, a really important question to get right. This is incredibly important. What do we do with this passage? How do we reconcile Paul and James? Well, before I get to my answer, let me share with you the three most common answers you'll hear out there in churches. So just in Christianity as a whole, there's three common answers to what to do with James 2. Um, The first that I'll share with you is the Roman Catholic answer. Now, what I'm going to share is the official Roman Catholic answer. I actually have a lot of friends who are Roman Catholic who do not agree with this particular teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. There's a lot of diversity within Roman Catholicism. So if you're Roman Catholic or from a Roman Catholic family, this view I'm about to share may not represent you. This is simply the official teaching if you go back to the creedal documents of the Roman Catholic Church. So the Roman Catholic Church officially believes that Paul and James were each only a addressing half of salvation you have to have both halves Paul is telling you you got to have faith James is telling you, you have to have good works and if you have both at the end of your life then you will earn salvation and so the official Roman Catholic answer is it works are required to gain eternal life that's what James is saying Second common answer that's out there is the Arminian answer. Arminians are one branch of the Protestant church, of which we're another. Okay, so Protestants. Um, Arminians are represented by Methodists. So if you come from a Methodist church, this is the view taught there. And Church of Christ. So if Church of Christ background, this would be... The view, so like all Protestants, Arminians believe that eternal life is by faith alone. You get saved simply by trusting in Jesus. However, they believe that if you don't follow your faith with good works, you will lose your salvation. They do not believe in eternal security. So to them, James 2 is saying, You never follow faith with good works, or you forfeit your eternal life. So that's the Arminian answer. Um, The third answer that's commonly out there is the Reformed or Calvinist answer. This is very common in a lot of other Protestant churches, including all your Presbyterians and Lutherans and many Baptists. Calvinists agree with Arminians that eternal life really is by faith alone, but they disagree about eternal security. Calvinists do believe in eternal security. Once saved, Always saved. So when they read James 2, that leads them to the conclusion that if you don't have good deeds, you are proving you were never actually saved to begin with. You were fooling yourself. You were either lying to the rest of us, you were lying to yourself. Good works are required to prove your salvation. If you don't have good works, you prove that you don't have eternal life. So they'll use the little cliche, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. If that faith doesn't have good works, it proves you never had faith to begin with. So those are the three most common answers, and I don't want to disparage these. I have a lot of friends who hold these views. A lot of great churches in town hold these views. These are Christian views, but I do disagree with them, and I disagree with them because I believe all three of these views are confusing the gospel of grace. If there's one thing that I think is really clear in the Bible, it's that our God is a God of grace. When C.S. Lewis was asked, what is the one unique thing about Christianity? He said, it's grace. That's it. That's what makes you Christian. That's the core of Christianity. It's the basis of the gospel, grace. It means getting something good you don't deserve, getting something good that you didn't earn and you don't pay back later. It's getting something completely for free. And the Bible tells us that our God is a God of infinite grace. And so God the Father gave us his son, Jesus That's grace. And Jesus gave us his life on the cross. That's grace. And once Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, now God offers us eternal life as a free gift. That's grace. That's the gospel. All you have to do is say to God, yes, I want that free gift, and you receive it. You have eternal life. That's the foundation of Christianity and of the gospel. And unfortunately, I think all three of these views confuse that simple message of grace. Ultimately, in all three of these views, you gotta have works. At some point, you gotta have works or you're gonna go to hell. If you don't have good works, you either aren't gonna gain eternal life, you're not gonna keep it, you're not gonna prove it, and you're end up in hell. So fortunately, I don't think we're limited to those three views. I believe there's a fourth view, which I'm excited to share with you this morning. But to understand this fourth view we 've got to do some good Bible study methods, and that actually leads to my ulterior motive. Why did I choose this crazy passage for like your first week back here in town? Um, part of it was because of the particular Sunday that it is here at Southwood. This is our get connected Sunday. This is when we try to try to help. Um, move many of you into small group Bible studies with us. We want to inspire you to join a a community group here at Grace Bible Church. And, And part of the reason that we want you to join a community group is because we want to teach you how to study your Bible. We, we want to teach you how to, to read it and interpret it accurately and apply it powerfully to your life. You don't have to go to seminary for that. Everything that I'm going to show you this morning, you could do without seminary. Now, seminary is great. Some of you should go there. But you don't have to do that to be able to use this. This isn't just for professionals. This is for all of you. And so this morning, I'm going to walk you through some Bible study methods to give you a taste of what you would get in one of our small group Bible studies. I want to inspire you to join with us this semester as we study the Word of God together so that you can learn how to use this book accurately and powerfully in your life, even when you face a hard passage like James 2. Okay, so hopefully this will be fun. I'm going to walk you through not just James 2, but how you how you figure out a passage like James 2. So, I'm going to walk you through our view, a fourth view that we think better fits the passage in our overall theology. You get to this view by practicing good Bible study methods. So how do you study your Bible? Any passage you're looking at that's confusing you. So you open your Bible and you don't understand what you're reading. What do you do? Always step number one. You read the book as a whole. Interesting fact, you may not know this. When you look down at your Bible and you see the chapters, the numbers, and the verses, those numbers, do you know those weren't added till well after a thousand years after James wrote? When, when James wrote the book of James, there were no numbers in it. It was just a letter he wrote to his friends. That's true of all the books of the Bible. There's no numbers in them, no chapters, no verses. They're just letters. So if you want to understand a letter that someone writes to you, how, how do you understand it? You, you read the whole thing. You've got to read the whole thing. James never wanted you to like pull out one verse and try to figure it out. That's completely foreign to how you read a letter. Imagine that a friend of yours writes you a letter in the mail. I don't know if any of you still do that kind of thing. Or sends you a long email. You would never dream of opening that email, jumping to the middle, reading one sentence, and trying to figure out what your friend is telling you. Well, that's crazy. You'd read the whole letter, right? You've got to do the same thing to understand the Bible. You got to sit down and read the whole thing so you get a sense of it. You get the big idea because every little sentence in the letter will somehow fit into the big idea of the letter. So we don't have time to read the whole thing together today, but, but that is what you would do and that's what I've done for you. So I've gone through and read the whole book and that prepares you for step number two. So after you read the book as a whole, which is always, always, always step number one, step number two, you determine the audience and purpose of the book this is so important. So few people do this when they open their Bible and try to understand what they're reading. How much of the Bible was written to you? Zero. Absolutely none of the Bible was written to you. All of the Bible was written for you. That's an incredibly important distinction. All of it is for you. It's meant to help you grow and follow Jesus, but none of it was written to you. I'm assuming most of you are 21st century Americans. You didn't exist when the Bible was written. None of it was written to a 21st century American. It was written to ancient people living in a very different world than you live in. And so if you're going to understand what the Bible means, you have to put yourself in their shoes. You have to understand who it was written to and why it was written to them. So, you read the book as a whole and you try to figure out who is the audience and what is the purpose behind this whole book. That will help you to understand whatever passage you're struggling with. So, who was this book written to? Well, grab the book of James, turn to the beginning. Often it'll tell you at the very beginning of the book. If you look at chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Well, there's a lot of information right there. It's the first three verses. When it talks about twelve tribes dispersed, that tells you probably we're talking about Jewish people who are living outside Judea. And then when James calls them, my brethren, if you you just do a quick word study, which you can do online really easily, you'll find that my brethren throughout the New Testament is talking to believers. And and that's driven home by the fact that in verse three, he says they have faith. It's now being tested. So we have Jewish believers that James is writing this very personal letter to. You, You can see that even clearer if you jump down to chapter two. Look at chapter two, verse one, my brethren. Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Well, that's really clear. These are believers who have faith in Jesus. There's another thing that tells you that these are believers who have faith in Jesus. You'd have to read the whole book to figure this out. But sometimes when you read a whole book of the Bible and you're trying to understand it, you need to ask yourself not only what is there, but what's not there. It's interesting. There's something missing from the book of James. The gospel. There's absolutely no presentation of the gospel. There's nothing in the book of James about Jesus dying for your sins and rising from the dead so you could have eternal life. Now, if James thought that these could be unbelievers or these could be people who lost their salvation, it would be irresponsible of him not to have included the gospel, which is the only thing they needed. There's no gospel in the book of James. That tells you he's writing to people who are believers. He's confident that they are already believers. They are already saved from hell and have eternal life. Okay, so these are genuine believers who are Jewish living 2,000 years ago. What is the purpose behind this letter? Because you write stuff and I write stuff for no reason because writing is easy today. Just tippy-type and and you've written. Um, In the ancient world, it was not easy. Writing was actually very hard and very expensive. So anytime you're looking at a book of the Bible, there's always going to be some really important reason that motivated somebody to go to the trouble to write it. So what's the reason for the book of James? Well, again, you have to read the book as a whole. What you'll find is that the audience, the, these, these Jewish believers living 2,000 years ago, they had a lot of problems. They had a lot of struggles. They were beginning to face persecution from the world, and they were scared about, about that persecution. They struggled with uh, favoritism. They were showing favoritism to the rich and and overlooking the poor. They were doing a bad job with their words, their speech. They kept hurting each other with their speech. They were quick to judge one another and look down on one another. They were falling in love with the things of the world instead of falling deeper in love with God. So ultimately, James is written as a book inspiring maturity in believers. They were failing to mature in their faith. And so James writes them this book to to challenge them to move forward in in maturity, in love, and obedience. Okay, so that's the big idea of our book. Now we're finally ready to jump into our passage. You notice that? You've got to look at the book as a whole before you ever let yourself look at just one verse. So let's go back to the particular verse we started with. Let's reread chapter 2, verse 14. When James asks, What use is it, my brethren? If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? Here's the problem, in my opinion, with the three views that I put on the board a little while ago. All three of these views failed to properly define their words. All three of these views read this verse and made an assumption without challenging it. They assumed that when they read the the word saved, it meant save you from hell get you to heaven but that's not actually how words work in Greek or in English words always have a range of meaning and so you have to figure out what is the range of what could this mean and then from the particular context of your passage figure out what definition fits best let me illustrate with an English word if I say the English word crack to you what do I mean Well, it depends if we're talking about sidewalks in Houston or illicit drugs or the sounds that we hear at a baseball game or a plumber coming to our house. (laughs) There's all different possible uses of the word. It depends on the particular context. To understand a word, you have to figure out the possible range of meaning and then decide which of those best fits your passage. So that's true of this word. It's true of the word save as well. So when you see save in the Bible, you have to define that word. That's the third step of good Bible study methods. You always define your key words. So what does save mean in the Bible? Well, you might be surprised to learn that save or salvation in the Bible does not mean get out of hell or go to heaven. It's not a technical term for that. The word save or salvation in the Bible simply means to rescue someone from something bad. Deliver someone from something that's a threat to them. And there's a lot of different uses. These are uses in the Bible, in the New Testament. Sometimes save means saving somebody from the penalty of sin. That is hell. Sometimes it means saving them from the power of sin in their life. If they're being tempted. Sometimes it means saving them from the presence of sin at work. Sometimes it means saving them from loss of reward when they stand... Before Jesus. Other places it means to deliver somebody from prison, like spring them out of jail. Sometimes it means save them from human enemies who are chasing them. Or save them from sickness, like heal them from an illness. Sometimes saving them from physical death. In one passage, saving them from drowning. So lots of different possible ways that word is used. It's used in different ways just in the book of James. Actually, here's James chapter 5. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Restore, that, no, that's the same word in Greek as save in chapter 2, verse 14. It has nothing to do with heaven or hell. It's about getting better from an illness, healing someone from sickness. So there's lots of different possible uses of the word save in the Bible. If you're going to decide what it means in James 2, you have to place it into its context. So in this book, what could the word mean? Well, we've already talked about the fact that, that these are believers, James is so sure that their believer is going to heaven that he never even gives them the gospel. So it can't be the first one on the left. It can't be saving them from hell because he's confident they already are. It's got to be a different one. So which one is it? Well, what you're going to do to figure that out is you're going to have to read some of the verses around the verse you're struggling with. So let's go back a couple verses and see what James is talking about there. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the immediate context is being saved from merciless judgment. But what is this judgment? We just said these are believers. So what judgment in the future will believers face? We've talked about that. A lot here at grace bible church we believe that in the future believers will face the judgment seat of christ that is in heaven you're already saved you're already in heaven you're standing before jesus your king and savior and jesus will evaluate your works in this life but it's not about heaven or hell you're, you're already in heaven you're in no danger of hell it's about reward it's about honor As you stand before your Savior and King, is He going to say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Here is your reward or not. Now, actually, this idea of the judgment seat of Christ, once you're already in heaven, it comes up often in the New Testament. Here's a few examples, 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we believers must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that's our judgment, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, not our faith, but our deeds according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And Paul talks about it again in 1 Corinthians 3. Now, if any man, any person builds on the foundation of the church to doing good deeds in this life to build up the kingdom of Jesus with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each man's work will become evident for the day when you stand before Jesus will show it because it is revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, meaning he did lots of good deeds in this life to build up the kingdom of Jesus, he will receive a reward. Not, not heaven, it's a reward. If any man's work is burned up, meaning he didn't do any good deeds for Jesus in this life to build up his church, he will suffer loss. He'll lose that reward, but he himself will be saved, yet is through fire. And by saved here, Paul is talking about saved from hell. It's not, he's not going to go to hell. He's going to be in heaven. He's going to lose out on that reward. That is the judgment seat of Christ. And that best fits what James is talking about. If you follow faith with good deeds, it will save you from loss at the judgment seat of Christ. You will receive reward and honor from your Savior and your King. That fits the context of James much better. Because if you look right after our passage we're struggling with, look at what James says. Chapter 3, verse 1. He says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. If judgment in the book of James is about heaven or hell, then I quit my job now. You would be a fool to become a pastor and make it harder for yourself to get to heaven. That's not what judgment is about in James. It's not about heaven or hell. It's about reward and honor when we stand before Jesus and he evaluates our lives. So when we look at what James is doing in James chapter two, he's trying to convince us that good deeds are worth the effort because good deeds are sacrificial. They're hard. They're painful. Why should you as a believer do good deeds when you could just cruise to heaven when you die? Why instead should you do good deeds? Reason number one, it saves us from loss at the judgment seat of Christ. That's the first of two reasons that James gives us for following our faith with sacrificially good deeds. We'll save you from loss at the judgment seat of Christ. Second reason is found in the next couple of verses. So look with me starting in verse 15. James says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Again, it's a rhetorical question. What use is it? None. It's useless. And that's the second reason. For doing good deeds, it saves us from living a useless life. And it's a very practical example. So a fellow Christian comes to you and is impoverished. They're destitute. And you just say, let me pray for you. Go on your way. I'm not giving you anything. That's useless for them. You have not helped them in any tangible or practical way. And so that leads James to a conclusion in verse 17. Look at verse 17. Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. A lot of people see dead there and assume it means you lost your salvation, you never had it to begin with. No, 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 no. Dead in the New Testament often means powerless. And that's what it means here. If you have faith but no good deeds, you're, you're powerless for helping other people. They came to you. They needed your help. And and your faith was powerless because you didn't follow it up with good deeds. James makes that really clear if you skip down to verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? That's the summary of this whole part of James, if you want. Just to underline that. That's his big idea. If you have faith without works, yeah, it gets you to heaven. But it's useless for helping people in need. It's useless for making a difference in this life. Useless and dead, they're synonymous here. So if you don't follow your faith with good deeds, you end up living a useless life. Now you may have noticed I skipped verses 18 and 19. I skipped them because my seminary professor taught me they are the two hardest verses in the entire Bible to interpret. And I agree with him. They're very, very difficult. Let me talk about them for a couple minutes and then we're going to move on because none of us know what to do with them. So this is verses 18, 19, and 20. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow? The faith without works is useless. We can tell from how it begins and how it ends that James is doing something writers commonly do in the ancient world. He is creating a hypothetical objector sounds weird. He's creating a hypothetical straw man that he's going to knock down, an opponent who disagrees with him and says something dumb, and we know it's something foolish because James calls him a fool just a little while later. The challenge is is that ancient Greek didn't have any punctuation. There were no quotes. So no one knows Exactly when the objector is speaking, and exactly when James is speaking. We all know kind of when the objector begins. Someone may well say you. So there it is, like verse or word six or seven in verse 18. The guy starts to speak, but we don't know when he stops. You just have to use the flow of the argument to guess. When is he done and James begins? And you can tell if you compare English translations, you'll see the end quotes are in different places in different translations. For me, based on the grammar of verse 20... I believe it goes all the way through verse 19. So I believe everything in red is the objector speaking who is a fool. So I I think everything in red there is a lie. None of it is the truth. It is James creating a straw man that he's going to knock down and call foolish. Do I know that I'm right? No, no one does. It's an incredibly hard passage to interpret grammatically and syntactically. However, here's the deal. I've often heard verse 19 used to terrify Christians. If you claim to be a Christian, you don't do good works. You have demonic faith and you're going to hell. No, that's not James speaking. That's the fool speaking. And it's a foolish argument. And I know it's a foolish argument because it doesn't make any sense. Realize demons don't have faith. They can't have faith. What does a demon have? Sight. They've actually seen God. They saw Jesus die on the cross. They saw him rise from the dead. No demon has ever had faith. They have sight. More than that, no demon was ever offered salvation. Jesus didn't die for them. Demons don't go to hell because they didn't do good works. Demons go to hell because they're demons. It's a ridiculous argument. It has no application to human beings. It is foolish. So please don't use verse 19 to terrify Christians into doing good deeds. I believe it's the words of a fool who's wrong. Okay, so again, I don't know for sure. It's incredibly hard. Let's jump down to what we know. Verse 20 is for sure James talking. And he gives us the big idea. Faith without works is useless. That's what he's trying to get you to understand. You don't help the people in need. You have brothers and sisters who are poor, who have no food, who have no clothing, who are destitute. And your grand faith in Jesus is doing no good to them if you don't follow it up with good deeds. So, Faith without works leads to a useless life. That's the second reason why we should do good deeds. And James follows that up with a couple examples for us from the Old Testament. So look with me, our first example. This guy named Abraham, he comes up a lot in the Bible. Let's pick it up in verse 21. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, here we are to the crux of the problem. Verse 24. The one that seems to directly contradict Paul. The key is, once again, you've got to define your words carefully. The word justified in the Bible does not mean go to heaven. That's not what it means. It's just a word. You have to study it in its context in the New Testament. What you'll discover is that justify or justified, it simply means to declare someone in the right. It's a word from the court of law. In English, we would use the word acquitted. It means that you were in a court of law and the judge declared you are acquitted. You are in the right in the eyes of the court of law. And so when we look at how this word acquitted is used throughout the Bible, we discover it's used in a lot of different contexts. Sometimes it's Pharisees declaring themselves to be in the right. Sometimes it's people declaring God to be in the right. God is justified. Sometimes it's God declaring people in the right. Sometimes it's people declaring other people in the right. Anytime you see justified or justification, you have to ask yourself, who is declaring who to be in the right in this verse? Okay, so... In this passage about Abraham and James 2, what's going on? Well, when we look at James and Paul, what we discover is that each of them are looking at a different moment in Abraham's life. For Paul in Romans 3 and in other places where he talks about Abraham, he's referring to Genesis 15, an event that happened when Abraham was 80 years old. Abraham believes a promise God makes, and the text tells us explicitly, God declared him in the right in that moment based on faith alone. So at age 80, we would say Abraham has eternal life. Maybe he had it before that, but for sure at that moment. He believes God, and God credits it to him as righteousness. God declares, you, Abraham, are in the right in my sight. That's what Paul is talking about, not what James is talking about. James references a totally different event in Abraham's life. It's Genesis 22. It's 20 years later. Abraham is 100 years old, and it's not about faith. It's about obedience. Abraham is is willing to obey God to a radical extent. One of the most radical acts of obedience in the entire Bible, he's willing to obey when God says, sacrifice your son, even though Abraham doesn't understand what's going on. He radically obeys God. And so when Abraham radically obeys God, who justified him? God? No. That was done 20 years earlier. Who justified Abraham? Us. Humans. The entire, I don't know if you knew this, but actually the, the majority of the world looks at Abraham as a model of obedience. It's not just Christians. All the Jews do and all the Muslims do. And you know what event in Abraham's life all of us look back at as the example of incredible obedience? It's this one in Genesis 22. We look at what Abraham was willing to do in Genesis 22 and we say, wow, what a remarkably obedient man. That is us justifying him. We're saying, in our sight, Abraham, you are in the right. You are amazing. That's driven home by what Paul said at the end of verse 23. Did you catch it? Very end. He, that is Abraham, was called the friend of God. Who called him the friend of God? God? No, that'd be silly. No, humans. Humans. Us, the world, we say, Abraham, you are a friend of God, not because of your faith, because we can't see faith, but because of your works, because of your obedience, we could see that and we say, wow, you are a friend of God, you're a remarkably righteous man, because you followed faith with good deeds. That's, that's where James is going. That's what James is talking about. That even though faith alone gets us to heaven, justifies us in the sight of God, we have to follow faith with good works if other people are going to justify us. If other people are going to say, wow, you are a friend of God. You are a follower of Jesus. How will anyone know you're a follower of Jesus if you don't do good deeds? So that's where James is going. He's trying to help us understand why it is worth doing good deeds. He's going to give us another example from the Old Testament in the next verse, verse 25, verse 25. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers or spies literally and sent them out by another way. So Rahab as our example, if you don't know the story, the Israelites are coming into the promised land. The first city they got to conquer is Jericho, and it's really big and really impressive. And so they send spies into it to figure it out. Those spies are, in some, in some way, they're found out and soldiers come looking for them. And Rahab hides them. And that's an incredibly risky thing of Rahab to do. Because if the soldiers found the spies in her house, spies die and she dies too, and probably all her kids. So why was Rahab willing to do this incredibly risky thing and hide the Israelite spies? Well, first of all, because she had faith in God. i actually told in the text, she believes that Israel's God is the one true God. But she's willing to follow that faith with this radical good deed of hiding the spies. And what is the outcome? When the Israelites come into the city, they kill everyone except Rahab and her family. They justify her they declare, you, Rahab, are in the right. Everyone else in your city is in the wrong. You're in the right. We're not going to kill you. In fact, Rahab ends up living a very useful life. Not only does she not die in that moment, but she ends up marrying an Israelite. They have a son who becomes the forefather of Jesus. She's actually included in the lineage of Jesus. It's an amazing story. It's beautiful. The whole point is, faith alone was enough to get her to heaven, but she had to follow faith with good works to live a long and useful life, right? So, Rahab is another example for us. Abraham's example and Rahab's example leads James to his conclusion in verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. In this uh, analogy here, the body is, is like faith, the spirit is like works. What James is saying is, just like a human body without a spirit is a stinky corpse that's doing no one on earth any good, So faith without works is stinky and doesn't do anyone any good. And that's the truth. If you have faith in Jesus, yeah, that's going to get you to heaven. But if you're not following that with sacrificial good deeds in this world, in God's eyes, you're stinky. You're you're useless. You're not helping anyone. You're not growing his kingdom. You're not living a beautiful life. You're living a stinky life like a corpse. James is trying to inspire us to follow our faith with good deeds. Okay, so now it seems that we have solved the problem we began with. Paul and James were never in conflict to begin with. They're talking about different things. Paul was telling us that faith alone saves us from hell and justifies us in the sight of God. All you need for that is faith. James is talking about something different. He's telling us that faith followed by good deeds saves us from a useless life and loss at the judgment seat of Christ And it justifies us in the sight of the world. If you've ever been worried about James 2 or, or afraid or confused, well, now you know what to do with James 2. And it does matter because so many people read James 2 and it causes fear and that's not what God wanted. God wants you to read James 2 and feel inspired. God wants you to read James 2 and realize, okay, yeah, I'm saved by faith alone in the sense of going to heaven, but God wants so much more for me in this life. God wants me to live a useful life. God wants me to live the kind of life that Jesus will reward and honor when I stand before him. And I cannot have that without good deeds. Good deeds are essential to living a useful life that Jesus will one day reward. And that is the application of this. It's an inspiring passage. And so if you read this passage and you are a believer, you've trusted in Jesus, but you haven't been doing a lot of good deeds. You've been just kind of living a worldly life, just like everybody else, not sacrificially helping those in need. You need to know, well, your faith is going to get you to heaven, but you're stinky. And you're going to lose reward when you stand before Jesus. You're missing out. God is challenging you today to get to work. Not so that you can escape hell or prove your salvation, but so that you can live a useful life that will be rewarded. God wants you to roll up your sleeves and find some people who don't have food who don't have a roof over their head, who don't have clothing, who don't have transportation, who don't have health care, whatever it is. He wants you to find people in need and meet that need sacrificially. That is what you are called to do as followers of Jesus Christ. Okay, so now that we've kind of figured out what this passage means, that that now leads us back to this idea of joining a small group. It's everything I did today, you may look at that and say, well, gosh, I'm glad Blake is here. No, you can do all of this. You can. We can teach you how. So many people open up to James. They turn to James 2.14. They read it and they freak out. That's not what God wants. You never have to do that. If you will learn to practice good Bible study methods, you will figure out how to interpret and apply each of these passages to your life in a powerful way. That's what we want for you. That's actually why we're called Grace Bible Church. That, that middle word under name, Grace Bible Church, it's not because we use the Bible on Sunday mornings. I, I kind of hope every church does that. It's because we want all of you to know how to use this book in your own life. That is our explicit goal at Grace Bible Church. We want to train each and every one of you to read this book, to, to, to interpret it, Accurately to apply it powerfully to your life. We want to train you to be able to use this book to teach your children and to be able to bless your neighbors. We want you to become an expert in this book. You don't have to have seminary for that. As great as seminary is, you can learn to do that now. That, that happened for me long before seminary. I am forever indebted to Grace Bible Church because when I was a student here 20 years ago at Texas A&M, it was Grace Bible Church that taught me how to read, study, and apply the word of God on my own, and that transformed my walk with Jesus more than anything else ever has. You can have that too. We will teach you how to use this book well and powerfully in your life. Just join us. Study the Bible with us. And so, as you leave this morning, you're going to see tables under the portico that's the little place outside. Those represent all of our different small group opportunities, Bible study opportunities. Talk to some people at those tables and find out what option would fit you best your stage of life, your availability, your interests, your childcare situation. Jump into one of those small groups. So talk to someone today. If there's too much of a rush and you have a difficult time actually getting to any of the tables, that's okay. You can simply email at the bottom of the screen there, Julie White at grace-bible.org, and Julie will help you to find a great small group for you. Okay, she'll, she'll help you figure out what works best for you. So you can email Julie White at grace-bible.org, or you can go to our website, www. Dot, grace-bible.org, click join a group, and you'll find all the information there about all the different groups that we offer. So our, our goal for you guys this year is that you'll join us in some form or fashion and learn how to study the Bible on your own so that you can interpret it and apply it powerfully and accurately. It will change your life. So if you'll close with me in prayer, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed a God of grace We praise you that you offer us eternal life, forgiveness, and relationship with you absolutely for free. We praise you that you have offered that in such a way that once we trust in Jesus, we receive all of it and can never lose it. We praise you and thank you for eternal security. We thank you that once we're saved, we're always saved and nothing can threaten that. We praise you that getting to heaven really is by faith alone. It is totally grace. It is totally a free gift. But we thank you that that you as our good father, you want so much more for us than just getting us to heaven. You want us to live a useful life that makes a difference in this world. And you want us to earn honor and reward from your son, Jesus. And so you have given us the way. You've shown it to us clearly in James chapter 2. I pray that all of us would apply this passage this week. I pray, Lord, that we would look for opportunities to sacrificially bless those in need. I pray that we would take of our abundance and share it generously with people in our community who are without fear food, without, without clothing, without shelter, whatever it might be. Help us to be radically loving and radically sacrificial to those needs because we believe that you've called us to do that, and you've inspired us that by taking care of those in need, we live a useful life that will be honored by Jesus. Thank you so much that that's what you want for us, Father. Help us to live a useful life of good deeds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Get connected. I'll see you next week.